Planet Worker, a world in development. South Sudan, 2014. One of the few pleasures of Juba life is watching the black kites and goshawks gliding across the dusk sky above the city. Down below, the hawks are also on the move, as the military hardliners of the SPLA and opposition gear up for the dry season and the inevitable conflict that will follow. It has been a year since war broke out in South Sudan, 12 months of bitter and deadly infighting, 365 days of terror for millions of innocents, so many of them children. Not that counting the days, the months and the years mean much to the children I have met during the recent months I've spent in the world's newest nation. Children just like the young girl I saw this week in a weariel in Lake State in the heart of the conflict. No older than 10 or 11, she had trudged three tough and dangerous kilometres to get to school and she did it on an empty stomach. Yet once she arrived at school, I saw her asking not only for food, but for books and for pens, hungry for both sustenance and knowledge. These are the real losers in this conflict. Their slim chance of an education becoming thinner by the day. Heartbreaking sights like this are all too common in a country in which an end to war seems no closer than it did a year ago. The peace process has stalled and the conflict is now ominously taking on an ethnic dimension that political settlements may struggle to solve. This ethnic dimension is perhaps the most frightening aspect of the conflict. It pervades all areas of South Sudanese society, even my own organisation, setting new tripwires and developing scars that will take time for heal. After the joyous day of independence in July 2011, the ethnic clashes in Zhonglei and ongoing border war with the North threatened to derail South Sudan's hard-fought establishment. Merle and newer fighters in Peebo County have been conducting a deadly war of tit-for-tat, cattle raids and abductions. Reports indicate that hundreds of children are being abducted in the latest rounds of violence. There are allegations that the SPLA moved slowly to head off an attack by 6,000 Neuro youth on Peebor town in January and the result is 60,000 people displaced and a state of emergency. The situation risks sparking a civil war in this new country. The situation is incredibly fragile. A key problem in this sprawling country is the lack of a clear tenure system. In a low-resource environment, this is always going to be a source of conflict. In the context of the lack of an accessible and trusted banking system, cattle substitute as an economic asset, serving both financial and social purposes. Without clear tenure systems, cattle grazing will inevitably lead to dispute, and in the context of long-standing ethnic rivalry, violence. By far the most pressing social issue in these events is mass child abduction. The stories of lost children are legion in this region. Paramilitary groups such as the Lord's Resistance Army and DRC continue to abduct and press gang children into their ranks. Military factions of every type continue to abduct girls for sexual slavery, a war crime and a crime against humanity. 
For foreigners, it is strange to think of child abductions as being part of life in South Sudan, but children are routinely captured and abducted in violent ethnic clashes, but not always for nefarious reasons. Although many children are sold within the abducting tribe and face the risk of being trafficked for conflict, slavery or sexual abuse, there is also an incredible practice of mass adoption. Children abducted in raids may often be sold to or adopted by childless families and raised as their own, eventually marrying into their captor tribe. Congenital reproductive biology, coupled with the social practice of bride wealth paid in cattle, becomes a severe social problem in a conflict environment. The Mural ethnic group, for instance, are pastoralists, often in conflict with neighbouring groups over scarce grazing resources and raids to boost cattle holding and marriage prospects. But they also have a very low fertility rate and childlessness is a common and painful reality for many. Although abhorrent and bizarre, child abduction on raids serves a tribal procreation purpose and newer children are often absorbed into Merle households and culture. Other children, though, suffer a meaner fate by being sold for income, effectively becoming modern slaves. The abduction of children is obviously a highly inflammatory issue, and if allowed to continue will virtually ensure the conflict will continue. Compounded by the loss of land, assets and livestock, there is little incentive for reconciliation. Families and ethnic groups grieving the loss of their children will seek revenge and the cycle of violence continues. Across the country, people are on the move and not just in the direct conflict zones. Thousands of frightened and displaced people are every day seeking shelter in UN bases. This is unprecedented and the UN mission in South Sudan now faces grim decisions on what to do with these people. It is not equipped to manage camps inside its bases. Tensions are rising as the UN faces a difficult choice. Expel those inside the base and face the prospect they will be attacked. Or maintain camps that themselves will become centres of conflict inside UN compounds. As Ellen Lowe, UN Special Representative, has said, the UN mandate is to protect all civilians, not just those in the camps. While the political and ethnic struggle continues, it is the children of South Sudan who suffer. Many have been distressingly separated from families and caregivers, making them more vulnerable to violence, abuse and recruitment into the conflict as child soldiers. The trauma of conflict leaves lasting marks on children's psyche and well-being. Even away from the conflict, challenges remain. Only 27% of South Sudan's population is literate and the schooling system is all under almost unbearable pressure. Schools are too few and are overcrowded. Less than 6% of girls aged 13 in South Sudan have some primary education. For young people, the opportunities for employment are limited, and there are only three formal technical institutions in South Sudan, all supported by one NGO. And then there is hunger. In the coming year, over a million people are at risk of food insecurity and 300,000 children and their families are at risk of facing hunger as food stocks run out. 
For young children, malnutrition poses a terrible risk to their future, and NGOs are playing an important role in ensuring food and nutrition is provided to the vulnerable. And yet, for the rest of the world, South Sudan is sliding down our list of priorities. Multiple global emergencies in Syria and in Iraq and the Ebola crisis mean that funds for South Sudan are likely to fall even as needs rise. The year ahead poses significant challenges for humanitarian organisations like my own. For NGOs, escalating conflict will directly affect where and how they work. Regulation will give much more government control over our activities. New legislation allowing for detention without charge will also place NGO workers at risk. Differences in the wider society may also spread to the workplace and NGOs will struggle to contain political and ethnic divisions among their own staff. After a protracted birth, the new nation of South Sudan faces destruction unless urgent measures are taken. The recent conflagration of violence in South Sudan serves as a reminder of the need to build a set of robust institutions for this nation and quickly. The eruption of political conflict and ethnic conflict is not so much the result of a shaky nation being put together, but rather the lack of urgency in the nation-building project by President Kiir and his cohorts. Examples of countries emerging from conflict demonstrate the need for rapid foundation setting for nationhood, primarily around strengthening the enabling environment for democracy, promotion and protection of rights, and responsive and fair governance. There are five challenges for the South Sudanese government in achieving this. The first is the need for a robust and fair policy and legal system to be established, founded on a comprehensive rights framework. It is imperative that the new government set in place a constitutional framework that enshrines the rights of all citizens and establishes the basis for equality and protection of all in law. This will provide an accountability mechanism for government and its actions, but also gives confidence and power to citizens to hold those in power to account. A second feature is to establish and strengthen the instruments of democracy and governments based on strong judiciary and inclusive government. Citizens need to feel that their rights will be upheld by these institutions and all those that work in them. Government should also focus on building a demonstrable track record of good and transparent administration and practice and address instances of corruption and maladministration, particularly at local administration levels. Thirdly, a systematic process of disarmament and demobilisation needs to be implemented to reduce the level of access to weaponry in the country and the number of private groups and militias who wield them. A properly conducted integration process needs to be undertaken to absorb demobilised militia members into the national military. Not doing so will always render the new state vulnerable to political or criminal action by disgruntled armed ex-combatants. A fourth area is the need for accelerated investment in areas of development that deliver more immediate opportunities for South Sudanese young people. These could involve public works programs that generate short-term employment opportunities allied with national vocational training programs and pro-poor economic development policies. 
This will ensure that the younger generation invest in their own and South Sudan's future. A fifth feature that is crucial for South Sudan's stability is the active leadership of the government to establish inclusive government and to underpin this with a national peace-building program. The latter needs to be a thorough grassroots process incorporating all levels of society. This requires an open and active leadership style by President Kiir and the power elite. If this is not visible and meaningful to ordinary South Sudanese across ethnic lines, then the nation will not settle and prosper. These five areas of nation building require active and demonstrable leadership action and firm application of policies and a culture that will be the template of the future of this country. Although poor, oil revenues offer potential for significant investment in programs that offer short-term gains and which lay a foundation for the future. NGOs have a role in this too, by offering capacity of training, development of models, and ensuring the voice of minorities and the marginalised are heard. Without these features, South Sudan's future looks very bleak indeed. If South Sudan is to survive as a state, Kiir and his government need to be vigilant, responsible and responsive. Instead of seeking military solutions, they will need to invest in a tenure system reform and active peace building and dispute resolution initiatives. It may pay them to look south for guidance in this, as South Africa endured years of conflict for much of the same reasons. For them, before a nation could be achieved, peace had to be built, step by step and with active leadership, acknowledgement of complicity and commitment and compromised by previously antagonistic tribes and leaders. Without undergoing a similar painful internal reconciliation and nation-building process, South Sudan risks slipping into a bloody multi-generational quagmire.